when they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these, what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left, he left them, went out to the city, to Bethany, and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for bringing us together this morning as we remember and we celebrate your coming to your kingdom and your coming reign, Lord. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there's a quote that often comes to my mind whenever I'm starting out to study or analyze a passage from the Bible. And that quote comes from a man with the ever humble title of Gregory the Great. Gregory was a pope of the Catholic Church around the year 600 AD. And in one of his commentaries on the Bible, he wrote, scripture is like a river broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. In part, I think that I love this quote simply because it's so much fun to imagine wading lambs and swimming elephants. But I also love the quote because it's so true. One of the reasons I think that the Bible has 
continued to resonate so powerfully all across the ages and around every corner of the globe is that it has the uncanny ability to meet people exactly where they are. It is a book of profound wisdom and truth, yes. But we don't all have to go and become these gurus who live in remote huts in the forest somewhere to, to find meaning in its stories and lessons. Its words can speak just as powerfully to us on the most common street corners of the most common towns as it would on the most majestic mountaintops. But if someone did decide to become a guru, if one of you was to leave here today and dedicate the rest of your life to, spending the, to, to studying the pages of the Bible, you would never touch the bottom. Just when you think that you have things pretty well figured out, inevitably a, a new door opens and you find yourself looking across a vast new space filled with countless untold treasures and mysteries. It's shallow and it's deep. It's simple and yet profound. It is a space that is bright as the sun and yet it's also shrouded in mystery. And I think you can see both sides of these forces at work in, in some of the most familiar traditions and practices of the Christian faith. If you grew up in the church, I want you to just take a moment and think back to some of those, those times in church that really left an impression on you as a kid. What is it that you see? What do you feel? For me, I find myself with these memories of holding candles in a dark church on Christmas Eve and singing Silent Night, or being lifted up by my parents to put a flower on the cross on Easter Sunday or as we're doing today, excitedly waving palm branches on Palm Sunday. On one level, these traditions are so memorable because they're so simple and they're so beautiful. And yet, despite the simplicity, each one is also a gateway into some of the timeless mysteries and wonders of our faith. Because really, what does it mean to hold a candle and sing a lullaby to an infant child when you're also proclaiming that this child's very breath and being is the origin of music and light? Or how can we grasp the unbelievable claim that we're making when we take those flowers and use them to transform one of the most humiliating and helpless forms of death into the very gateway of redemption and hope and light? It is shallow and deep simple and yet infinitely profound. But then we might ask, where does Palm Sunday fit into all of this? Because on first glance, I think that it's pretty easy to consider that on this day, at least, we, we, things have a pretty straightforward meaning. For once, it seems that we as humanity might at least kind of be getting things right. Our king is coming to his rightful home Jesus is here with us entering Jerusalem with triumphant fanfare. As we hold on to our palm branches today, we are standing in solidarity. We're, we're locking arms with those crowds who were there that day to welcome him and to celebrate his coming reign. It feels really good, doesn't it? It, it feels so good sometimes that it can be easy to 
be carried by all of this excitement and joy directly into next Sunday. We can go from the Hosannas of Palm Sunday right into the Alleluias of Easter Sunday and never skip a beat. Today we're welcoming our king with open arms and next week we celebrate his victory over our enemy. It's a really great story, but unfortunately it's also a really dangerous story. Because if we tell the story to ourselves that way, we are overlooking one of the hardest, the most difficult, but also one of the most important parts of this entire tale. We're looking, of course, right past the cross. Because in a few short days, our king is going to die. And not only that, but we are going to be the ones who kill him. The same crowd who is triumphantly welcoming Jesus today will soon be standing before Pontius Pilate with a new song on their lips. There we will be singing a song of betrayal. There we will be demanding that Jesus be put to death. And somehow, all of that is carried on these tender green branches. As we hold these branches today, we are standing in solidarity with our arms locked with the crowd in both places, in both moments. If that's true, then what are we supposed to make of ourselves? Are we good people? Are we righteous people who are longing for God and celebrating God's coming? Or is all of this today just a show? Is the purpose of this day and this week simply meant to reveal how evil and corrupt we really are? In my mind, neither of these answers is correct. The really difficult lesson of Palm Sunday and of this entire Passion Week is that we are both. We have the capacity, we, we, we have the desire to be people who truly long for God. But at the same time, we can be people who want nothing to do with God. The hands that we might lift in genuine praise and worship today can very easily be the same hands that we would lift to abuse or even to kill God days or even moments later. If we acknowledge our capacity to, to do and to be both, to be that good and also that evil, if it's, it's a good reminder for us to, to walk humbly and thoughtfully and with prayer. But it's also a good reason to reflect on our lives. It's a reason for us to, to be careful to identify the places and the things and the moments that are capable of turning our hearts so suddenly and so dramatically away from God. Now, this isn't necessarily an unfamiliar topic of conversation. We often hear more than enough of it on the news or on social media or sometimes around dinner tables. We ask this question of what is it that's corrupting our families or our communities or our nation? What is it that is turning so many people today away from God? Some days we might say that it's movies and television. Other days, it's pop music. It also might be corrupt politicians, or greedy corporations, or the internet, 
or our phones. Maybe it's because we took God out of our schools. Or maybe it's because all of the wrong people are trying to put God back into our laws. There's probably a level of truth in some or maybe even all of these. But I think that we can also learn something critically important if we are willing to follow Jesus' footsteps through this passage from Matthew that we read this morning. After Jesus enters Jerusalem and begins the work of reestablishing God's kingdom, where does he go first? It's not to the governor's palace or to the army barracks or to the downtown market. Instead, of course, he goes straight to the temple. And it's not only that, but when Jesus enters the temple, we, we seem to see this whole new side of him. This is really the one and only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus in this state that we might call anger or violence. It's there in the house of the Lord, in the house of prayer. If we look across that room of overturned tables and general confusion, I think we might be able to catch a glimpse of Jesus's face. We might even get a glimpse of his eyes. And once we see the passion burning inside of them, I think that we're forced to confront another hard and complicated truth. It's the truth that some of the things that turn our hearts farthest away from God are the things that look and sound the most like our religion. But then you might say, well, wait, Jesus wasn't throwing out religion. Jesus was throwing out the money changers and the dove salesmen and all the other people there who were buying and selling things. And that's true to, to an extent. The doves were a part of the temple sacrifice, but a lot of the other things do seem kind of odd and out of place, especially to our modern imaginations. Unfortunately, I think that we use this oddness to often try to distance ourselves from this part of the story. If there's a moral here, we often reduce it down to something as simple as, well, we better not sell stuff in the church lobby. As long as we're not doing that, then surely we aren't a part of this den of robbers. But I don't think it's quite that easy, though. In verse 13, when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He wasn't just speaking the very first words that came into his mind. As usual, Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. He was quoting Israel's prophets. This phrase, the den of robbers, comes from the book of Jeremiah. And I want to spend some time in that passage this morning because I think it can have a really important message for us as we enter into this holy week. As a quick bit of background, Jeremiah was a prophet who lived in Jerusalem in the final few years before Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian Empire. Babylon was already a great power and was looming threateningly on the horizon but a lot of the people in Jerusalem just weren't that worried. They believed that Jerusalem would never fall. It could never fall because it was the home of Mount Zion. 
It was the home of God's temple. No enemy could possibly be stronger than God, and so God's people and God's city would never be defeated. Jeremiah starts to speak directly to these people in Jeremiah 7, though. There we read these words. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doing, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. But here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and then say, we are safe, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. And now, because you have done all these things, says the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all your kinsfolk, all the offspring of Ephraim. So what's going on here? Jeremiah, as we read, is speaking this word of the Lord at the gates of the temple. And I think we need to pay attention to that. He's not somewhere down in an especially corrupt or seedy or unsavory part of the town. He is speaking to the people who are coming to the temple of God to worship. And he's telling them, you're just not getting it. You're looking for salvation here, but you don't really seem to understand what salvation is. The covenant that God made with your ancestors the temple here that Solomon built for your nation, these things aren't your get-out-of-jail-free cards. This isn't a magic spell that makes you immortal and invincible and, and free from all of your sin. The law and the temple and the covenant are all good things, but they are good because they are invitations. 
through them, you are being invited to enter into a life of relationship with God. You are being invited to participate in the life of God's justice, God's righteousness, and God's mercy. That's what salvation is. But if you refuse that invitation, if you refuse that relationship, then all of these things that you're calling religion are worthless. In a way, it's actually worse than worthless. It becomes dangerous. A life of religion that has refused God's invitation does little more than offer us excuses for a life of carelessness and cruelty and idolatry. We do all of these things, but then we don't even worry about the consequences. We simply walk into the temple on the Sabbath. We walk into church on Sunday, and we say, you know, don't worry about that stuff. It's okay. We're safe here. God is on our side. And there, in that moment, is the, the key to how the temple of the Lord becomes a den of robbers, a place where the sinful and the unrighteous gather so they feel safe in their sinful lives. And that's how our religion can lead us so far away from God. And as we see in the story this week, it also makes us blind. If we allow religion to become empty promises and gestures, the living God that is offered to us through it will become a stranger to us. We may truly long for God, but we're so blind that when we encounter God living in our midst, we don't see anything familiar. The reality of God starts to look so different than the stories that we craft in our minds. And so, instead of worshiping God when we meet God, we reject God. Ultimately, we crucify God. This is something that I think we should always be aware of and alert to, but especially during this week. We don't have a temple because we have this week. We don't have a temple because we have the cross and an empty tomb. And so maybe our danger isn't saying, it's okay, we are safe here, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But I can't help but wonder if the words that sometimes turn our houses of prayers into den of robbers might sound a little bit more like, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen. How often do we use those words to justify our complacency? How often do we use them to hide our cruelty and our idolatry? How often do we use them to ignore Christ's presence and calling in our lives? Please do not hear me wrong. He is risen. We're going to get to say that a whole lot more next week. But hear it again. He is risen. It's just that the story does not end there. The empty tomb is an invitation that beckons to us to search and to follow Christ. If we do not accept this invitation, if we're not willing to offer our lives to God and to follow in the way and the truth of Christ, none of this is going to do us any good. 
all of these beautiful symbols and words and traditions will mean kind of next to nothing. But if we accept the invitation, it means everything. It means redemption. It means restoration. It means abundant and eternal life, both today and in the life to come. So that's my prayer for myself and for all of us this week. As we move through this coming Holy Week, as we read these stories, as we say these prayers, as we sing these songs, I pray that we don't fall into the trap of treating this as a story of good news that happened a long time ago. I pray that we don't try to flatten salvation into a two-dimensional formula that excuses us from danger and all wrongdoing. Instead, I pray that we would encounter salvation in all of its living and its breathing richness. I pray that we would accept this invitation and be drawn ever further into God's eternal life and into all of the hope and the joy and the beauty that awaits us there. Amen.